for a variety of reasons, we live in an age of arrogance. It may be associated with social media and how we reduce to just a few characters our opinions uh, strongly held. It may be the political divisions that characterize uh, politics all over the globe these days. It may simply be the pace of life. There's a variety of reasons why I think we could conclude we have come to an age of arrogance. It is something that we as believers have to wrestle with because we swim in the cesspool of our culture. And it's very easy for that arrogance to rub off on us. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about losing our arrogance in an age of arrogance. We're in a series in 1 Corinthians called Your Part in Building a Healthy Church in a Pagan World. This morning, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So I invite you to open your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians 4. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at our identity, grace, and unity in Christ and the wisdom and power of God in Christ. That's all from chapter 1. Then we looked at proclaiming Christ crucified in wisdom from the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. We revisited that identity and unity in Christ at the beginning of chapter 3 and concluded it with the message on Christmas Day about the eternality of Christ and the Christian that in fact we have on the foundation of Christ building materials that can be gold, silver, precious stone that the day of the Lord will reveal that they are precious and eternal or we can build on the foundation of Christ wood, hay, and stubble which will be burned up on that day of the Lord. Uh, This month, this whole month, however, is going to be about arrogance. Paul is concerned that the believers in the church hold first to an authority of Scripture, but to hold to that authority without an arrogance, without arrogant hearts. So today we're going to look at how we lose our arrogance in an age of arrogance. In the coming weeks, we will look at chapter 5, losing our arrogance about tolerating sin. We can become very arrogant about just saying, well, it's a cavalier about the matters of sin. In chapter 6, we'll look at losing our arrogance about being right. There is an arrogance that can come from thinking that you are right about all things, and we need to lose our arrogance about that. And then the second half of chapter 6, losing our arrogance about sexual immorality. We have become very used to such wrongs, and we almost become proud of our what's termed openness We need to lose our arrogance about those matters as well. So if you found 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's stand for the reading of Scripture if you're able to stand. And we will read this whole chapter that is about losing our arrogance in an age of arrogance. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute to the present hour. We hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Please have a seat. In this chapter, Paul is contrasting the we, which is he and the group of apostles who have served the church, particularly the church at Corinth, and contrasting that with the you, you Corinthians, who are arrogant, who are trying to develop parties. I am of Paul, one party says, another one says, I am of Apollos trying to make factions in the church and everyone talking in an arrogant way about who they are and why their group is the best. So how do we lose our arrogance 
in an age of arrogance. First, we should know who we are. And when we know who we are, that will humble us. Notice how Paul begins this chapter. This is how one should regard us, and he uses two illustrations. First, servants of Christ. Second, stewards of the mysteries of God. Let's take them each in turn. The word he uses for servants is, a, is a, not the common word that's in the New Testament for servants. It literally means under rowers. Under rowers. Do you remember those galley ships from the Greco-Roman world where they had rows of people and they're going, and you've probably seen the movie, I ho ha, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, that's the picture here. This is, by the way, a, uh, a replica that was made in the 1990s, and I guess for a fee you can still get on this ship and become a galley slave. Um, Paul's saying, I'm not the captain of the ship. I'm not on the deck. I'm not even on the top of this trireme on the, as the rower. I'm down in the bowels rowing. I am an under rower of Christ. That's what he means when he says the word steward or servant. Now let's think about the word steward. This is the manager of a business or a farm. Not with the ultimate responsibility though. Not originators of the truth but instead one who is responsible to the owner. Paul is a steward entrusted by God himself who is the owner. The stewardship idea helps us avoid two major temptations that the American church can fall prey to. One temptation is to have the leadership of hierarchy where people look up to a boss who has complete ownership and control of the operation. We need to avoid that. A second temptation is what we might term a democratic model where we seek to do whatever we can to give people what they want. Instead, Paul says he has a stewardship from God, a discharge of a ministry responsible to God who is the owner. Well, what's Paul a steward of? It says there in verse 1, stewards of the mysteries of God, the revealed truth of God. Now, this isn't some hidden illusory power. Uh, for example, there's some uh, within Roman Catholicism, for example, there's a view of communion that says that the priest is offering in the physical presence of Christ when he blesses the communion element. That's not what it's being talked about here, some illusory hidden power. Neither is it something that simply suits our own tastes, which can easily, we can fall prey to, right? Whatever flavor of the week we happen to enjoy about uh, some particular ministry. No, no, no. Paul is a steward of what God himself has revealed. 
It's not mysteries in the sense of secret hidden wisdom. It's mysteries in the sense of something that hadn't been revealed, but now is revealed. And the mysteries of God are that God has come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he died as a payment for our sin, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead victorious over the grave, and he ascended into heaven, and one day he's going to rule and reign over everything. That's the mysteries of God, which hadn't been revealed before, but now are. Verse 2, it is faithfulness to this stewardship that's what Paul and really all believers will be judged by. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It won't be, it doesn't say uh, it is required of stewards that they be found popular or that they be found successful or that they be found, fill in the blank of what we would maybe want to put in there. The measurement is our faithfulness to discharge this beautiful mysteries of God in the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, knowing our responsibilities to this stewardship should humble and challenge us. That's where we come into verses 3 and 4. Paul is going to give an account to God for this stewardship. The real scrutiny here, the judge of it, isn't human. He says, it's a small thing I should be judged by you. You know, you can make judgments about my ministry. That's a small thing to me. In fact, any human court, that's a very small thing. In fact, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. The real scrutiny is not human. The judgment of God is much greater than any human judgment. If the master is satisfied, the blame or the praise of others is irrelevant. Even, notice verse 4, even one's own conscience is not the ultimate judge. Paul says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, I don't judge myself, but I'm not aware that there's any way in which I have not faithfully discharged my stewardship. But that doesn't mean that I am acquitted. There may be something that I don't even know about myself. It's the Lord who judges me. Our judgments about ourselves are premature. They lack competence because we don't have the divine mind that sees everything. Paul's conscience is clear, but even that is partial. Now, there is a place, of course, for human judgment. Chapter 5 is going to address that. But we serve with a deep awareness that we seek to please not ourselves, not others, but God, and we will be judged by Him. He is the ultimate judge. We don't know the status of some things in life, do we? Has it ever occurred to you, or has it ever happened to you, that you get shocked by a steward of God who somehow has betrayed that stewardship? perhaps with some moral failure or other. 
And we tend to look at that and we go, whoa, whoa, what happened there? And then we discover that perhaps for years or even decades, they had been betraying that stewardship. And we're shocked by it. Did you know that God is never shocked? He's never shocked. He is the right and accurate and ultimate judge. So, verse 5, it is important to withhold our judgments with a humble and circumspect heart. The Lord himself is going to bring to light things that are hidden now in the darkness. He is going to disclose the purposes of the heart. And that's going to be a refining moment. He will disclose the purposes of your heart. He will disclose the purposes of every heart. At that time, for those who have been good stewards, a wonderful thing will happen. Each one will receive his commendation from God. One of my greatest privileges as a pastor here at East White Oak is that when it comes time for the Lord to give those commendations, I know you. And while I don't believe I'll be anywhere near the front of the line, I'm glad I know some of you who will be. It is not the scale, the size, or the human influence that is at work here that puts you at the commendation from God. It is faithfulness. Faithfulness. As a result of this servanthood and this stewardship, Paul says in verse 6, let's apply this by not going beyond what is written. You see, there's an authority to the Word of God, and then there's all kinds of issues that we can have opinions about, but let's not get on our high horse about those things. <laughs> let's not be puffed up in favor of one over against another. Let's avoid these two problems of legalistic hard-headedness and hard-heartedness on the one hand, and avoiding worldly popular faddishness on the other. Instead, all of us ought to be, like Paul and the apostles, humble. Look at verse 7. Who sees anything different in you? Let it be said of God's people everywhere, and particularly of those of us here at East White Oak, that people see there's a difference in us. We are not arrogant. We are not know-it-alls. We are humble. Paul says, what did you have that you did not receive? You see, salvation is a gift, isn't it? And sometimes when people have been Christians for a long time, it becomes almost so common to our thinking that we're saved by God's grace through a gift. We go, yeah, yeah, we know that. That we somehow even though we deny it intellectually, we begin to live out 
an arrogance that says we know more than everybody else. We need to be careful of that kind of arrogance. What did you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you act as though you didn't receive it? Why are you acting like you didn't get it as a gift? (laughs) Why are you acting that way? So knowing who we are should humble us. Secondly, knowing the price of following Christ should humble us. And here Paul begins with some sarcasm and then he talks a little little bit about his life. Let's look at the sarcasm first, verse 8. And the Bible is filled with sarcasm, particularly in the Old Testament prophets, so it's not a surprise that Paul has a little sarcasm here. Already you have all you want. Already you have, you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign. You know, I wish you were kings so that we might humbly share the rule with you. <laughs> you see the sarcasm there? You think you're really something, he says? Verse 9, the apostles, if anybody ought to be something, if anybody deserved it, it would be the apostles, wouldn't it? And yet Paul describes the apostles as, notice verse 9, last of all like men sentenced to death. Now this description, last of all as men sentenced to death, he could be Uh, referring to two possible things. I'll let you debate that in your small groups if you want to. Uh, One is a Roman triumph, which is a ticker tape parade for Roman generals who won big victories. And as they did this big ticker ticker tape parade, the people last in line were the captives who, when they got to the end of the ticker tape parade, were slaughtered. Okay? So, hooray for our team, you know, and here's the apostles, last of all. The other possible uh, idea that Paul has in mind here is that of the arena. And you know how they'd put on these spectacles in the arena, and they'd always save the best for last, where the wild animals and the lions would rip apart the people that were there for the sport of the attenders, of the spectators, to look at them being destroyed. And Paul perhaps is thinking here of an arena where here are the apostles, the last Big event, the main event of the evening, the apostles coming out and getting slaughtered by the animals. You can pick whether you think of the Roman triumph or of the spectacle here. But either way, it's a picture of utter defeat and death. Notice how Paul describes it. God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle. And notice, to three different things. They have become a spectacle to the world. The world looks at them in kind of amused horror at their destruction. They've become a spectacle, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, to angels and a spectacle to men. It's an interesting phrase, angels. It's always used in the Bible to describe good angels. Here's the idea. Even good angels turn in shocked horror at the spectacle 
of the hateful treatment of God's sent apostles. The price of following Christ should humble us, brothers and sisters. Verses 10 through 13, Paul contrasts the humility of the apostles with the assured, misplaced confidence of the Corinthian believers. We and you. We are fools for Christ's sake. You, you think you're so wise. We are weak. You think you are so strong. We, you are in honor. We are in disrepute. And then he goes on to a description of what their lives were like as apostles. We hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. We're buffeted. That means banged around. We're homeless. Paul was a tent maker in part because he built his own shelters. (laughs) We're homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. And that was how he made his living, was making those tents. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, people say wrong things about us. We entreat. We just ask God for help. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage of all things. In this we, you picture that Paul has painted here in verses 8 through 13, on which side of this divide do you stand? Knowing the price of following Christ should humble us. Now we come to the last section of this passage with this question. Well, how can we avoid such arrogance? You know, living in an arrogant age, how can we avoid it? Well, living a life of humble example enables proper judgment without arrogance. And here in verses 14 and 15, Paul makes an analogy of what a good father is like. Now, some of you have had good fathers in your life. Others of you have had horrible fathers. But stick with Paul here. There's a lot of times where people say, well, I've had a bad father, so I'm going to ignore this stuff about fathers. No, no, no. Pay attention to what he says about what good fathers do because it will help you. His illustration is helpful whether you've had a good father or not. So hang with Paul here for just a second. Look at verses 14 and 15. Fathers do not immediately, good fathers that is, do not immediately shame their children even though it is their right. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not saying all this stuff to put you down, make you feel bad. Instead, I'm writing these things to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's sarcasm in verse 8 is not intended to shame the Corinthian believers. He wants them to know that they are not beyond hope. If they were beyond hope, he wouldn't even be writing to them. (laughs) 
Now, later in this letter, he will write some things to shame them because they're engaged in some shameful stuff. But that's not where a good father starts, and it's not where Paul starts. Fathers do admonish or warn their children. The design is to correct, not to provoke, not to embitter them. So, for example, as a good father say, stop, don't go into the street. The father is not trying to provoke or embitter the child. They're trying to protect and correct the child. Paul regards these dear saints at Corinth as beloved children. Did you know that Paul doesn't use the word disciples to describe church members? It's not a bad word. It's just not a word that Paul uses. Instead, he uses the word children. Philemon 10, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, 2 Corinthians 6.13 and 12.14, Galatians 4.19. His image is that of a father loving on his children And the children here, in fact, are out of line. They were filled with pride, elevated views of themselves, and they are setting the men who brought the Word of God to them, they're attempting to set them against one another in a party spirit. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. But notice in verse 15 how Paul describes his relationship to the Corinthians. He says, you may have... 10,000 guardians, that's the word countless, it literally is 10,000. You may have countless guardians in Christ, guides. You do not have many fathers. This phrase guide or guardian was an actual official term in the Greco-Roman world. A guardian was to conduct the children to and from school and to oversee the general conduct of the children, but the children did not belong to the guardian. Paul says, you can have 10,000 of those guys. I'm your father. I care for you like a father does. And notice how he says it here with such plaintive words in verse 15. But to Jesus Christ, this, I'm going to give you a literal translation here. But to Jesus Christ, through the gospel, I, and he emphasizes the I, have begotten you. And he emphasizes the word you. To Jesus Christ, through the gospel, I have begotten you. I'm your father in union with Christ. He longs for them to overcome their arrogance that they might become all that they can be in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 16, I urge you, be imitators of me. If it is true that I in Christ brought you the gospel, you ought to become imitators of me in what I do and how I do it. Learn humility. The Father urges His children to be like Him. Many years ago now, my oldest son was learning how to run, and I couldn't figure out for the longest time why it was that whenever he ran, he would go like this. I'd be like, why has he got his head behind him like this? And then I realized that when I was teaching him to run, I was ahead of him, and I went, come on, Joel, let's go. (laughs) 
And so, he was imitating his father. Paul is saying, be like me in this humility, in an age of arrogance. Now, Paul doesn't just tell them what to do. He sends them help, verse 17. That's why I sent Timothy to you, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He's sending another one of his children to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Timothy is sent to Corinth to teach and remind in person and consistently both the content of what Paul teaches and Paul's way of life. The two go together inseparably. It's not just content. It's a way of life, both ethical and doctrinal. It's a consistent way of life. Paul teaches this everywhere he goes, in every church. There was a body of knowledge and a way of living that was communicated, known, and followed from the apostles to the churches. So, as we think about this idea of living a life of humble example, enabling proper judgment without arrogance, we need to be reminded of some applications here. First, leaders ought to believe in people's potential and lift them up, not by shaming them, but by admonishing, encouraging, Then you can do this. Secondly, the things that we teach must be lived out reminded and urged to imitate, not as a law, but as a joy. And that joy should be reflected. And thirdly, while Paul's using the analogy of a father, it goes, this analogy goes the other direction as well. Paul's assumption about what fathers do, what a good father does, are helpful for those of you who are fathers. If you are a father, learn this. Don't immediately shame your children. Give your children hope. Do not provoke or embitter them, but correct them. Regard your children as beloved. Invite them to imitate you and spending time with you. Give your children the help they need to fulfill your wishes for them. So now as we come to the end of our passage, verses 18 through 21, as a father, there comes a time when tough love must be expressed. It is true that some people want to test their parents. <laughs> Paul is wise to see that some in Corinth will test him. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Paul makes a threat here in verse 19, I will come shortly if the Lord wills. Paul's going to come and check out if these arrogant Corinthians with their elo eloquent words have any gospel power. Look at verse 19. I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not exist, consist in talk, 
but in power. You know, the judgment of impressive words is not very important. You can build entire magnificent edifices of ministry on wood, hay, and stubble. Paul's saying, what matters is not the great flow of words or the show we put on. What matters is the kingdom of God coming in power down to the present moment. The power of God expressed through the real gospel of Jesus Christ that is changing real lives forever. So, like a good father, Paul presents a choice to the Corinthian children. What do you wish? Verse 21, shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, the rod is not wrong or unloving. In fact, it is sometimes necessary as an act of love. But what Paul prefers is coming with love in a spirit of gentleness. Those that are sick need to look for relief. Now, medicines are not nice, but they are what we need when we're sick. Last week, I was with my granddaughter who had an infection that she needed to take medicine in the morning and in the evening. And it fell on me to... um, give out the medicine. We went through an entire liturgy, friends. (laughs) We had to get the paper towels out, the medicine put in the right thing. We have to have a drink of water. She's got to get all the jumpies out of her, so she's got to run around a little bit. And then we get through the ceremony, and she's still not ready yet. And then finally she, and I smelled the medicine. If it tasted anything like it smelled, it was horrible, okay? (laughs) They're not nice, but they're what we need. And the Corinthians were sick. They had factions. They had lost their testimony through their arrogance before the world. They were not preaching the word, and the ministry was unfruitful. We need to take the medicine of humility, it doesn't taste good but it's good for our soul. It's good for our community. It's good for our world. In Paul's description of coming with a rod, you know church discipline is misunderstood these days as unloving when it can in fact be the most courageous form of loving when rightly administered. Imagine how the church would be strengthened if the discipline of every church was honored by every other church. Imagine the power that would be at work there. Like Corinth, when we are sick, we need to take bitter medicine, the medicine of humility, confession, repentance, and a recovery of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in an arrogant world. We can't do much about that. But that arrogance can rub off on us without our even being aware of it. Can we pray, dear brothers and sisters, that the Lord will humble us, protect us from the evil one's arrows, 
and cause us to live with proper judgment, but without arrogance. Holding to the authority of God's word, yes, but doing so with absolute humility that there's nothing that we have in the gospel that we have not received as a gift. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we pray that you would help us so to live such humble lives that the world would see there is a humble people. Help us not to compromise the authority of your word, but help us not to go beyond what is written. And we'd ask, Heavenly Father, that in your grace, you may be pleased to awaken some to eternal life today, that they would see in their own lives that they need the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. That they would say, I, I'm humbling myself before you, God, in my sin. I know, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. I ask you to forgive me of my sin by what you did at that cross. I believe you rose from the dead, and I believe that means that you have the power to give eternal life to whomever you will, and I'm asking you for that eternal life that you promise those who believe in you. O oh Lord, do your work and help us to take the medicine of humility. In Jesus' name, amen.